Well, let's turn in God's Word to 1 Kings in chapter 13, page 316 in our church Bibles. In the two Sundays I have before I go to the Castlefields house party, I want to conclude the reign of Jeroboam. I want to look at the entirety of chapter 13 with you this evening. I know it is a fairly lengthy chapter, but if we just took it in various sections, we would lose the whole thread. In fact, really chapters 12, 13 and 14, the chapter divisions are really quite irrelevant. But we have to divide that up. That would be far too big to try and cover in one sermon. But chapter 13, let's hear then the word of God. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places, who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. But the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favour of the Lord your God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. And he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. 
And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him, and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. And he went and found his corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn the donkey. The prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. So it was, after he had buried him, that he spoke to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For a saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. But again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever wished, whoever wished he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. This thing was the sin of a house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. Now let's pray. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would open up to us the meaning and the significance of these events that we have read in this chapter together. Lord, we desire to be turned from our sin. We desire to be instructed in the way of truth and of righteousness. We desire to have the truth impressed upon our minds and our consciences. Lord, do not disappoint us. Come and by your presence, the presence of your Spirit, help us, instruct us. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.
We read in the previous chapter, chapter 12, of Jeroboam's great sin. We read there and elsewhere through the book of Kings that it was he who made Israel to sin. It was he who provoked the Lord to anger. And he established a pattern of false worship that never ceased until the day that Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes over which he, Jeroboam, was now king, had been taken away into exile. That was a period of some 300 years. And we saw in chapter 12, Jeroboam's repeated acts of disobedience that took him further and further away from God. Now, here in chapter 13, here is Jeroboam about his own worship that he has established. He has gathered the people on one of his appointed holy days in Bethel. We read in verse 1, he stands by the altar to burn incense. Everything is set up for a grand occasion of Jeroboam's appointing, or so Jeroboam thought, because he had reckoned without the God who would intervene and would reckon he had reckoned without the anger of God whom he had provoked. Did he really think he would get away with what he was doing? Did he really think that God would not do anything at all? Jeroboam has set up a false idolatrous religion with the golden calves of Bethel and at Dan. He has led the nation astray. He is defiling God's name, God's honour, God's glory. God does not sit as it were on his throne in heaven, wringing his hands in despair, thinking, what shall I do? What can I do? Neither does he turn a blind eye and shrug his shoulders as if he did not care about what Jeroboam was doing. He was not taken either by surprise by Jeroboam's actions. His holy worship, though, has been violated. His covenant has been trampled upon. His reputation is at stake in the ten tribes and indeed throughout the entire world of that day. Much of this chapter leaves us scratching our heads. Some of it sounds at first bizarre. There are a lot of unanswered questions and they will remain unanswered. We will not speculate because the scripture is not concerned with us speculating about why this and why that and why not this and why not that. One thing is clear. God is active. God is not going to stand by and watch this happening without responding. And his word stands. That is the message of this chapter. His word stands. Jeroboam has been high-handed. And chapter 13 shows how quickly God responds to Jeroboam's high-handedness. The consequences of rejecting the word of God are clear for all to see. This chapter, its theme is God's word stands. If you look through this chapter as we read it together, 
nine times you will find the phrase, the word of the Lord. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 9, 17, 18, 20, 26 and 32. It hits you at the very beginning of the chapter. Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. The same is underlined towards the end of the chapter in verse 32. The saying which he, that is the man of God, cried out by the word of the Lord. And if you read through the chapter again, you'll find other references to what the Lord spoke. His commands, his mouth. It's about God, it's about his word that stands. This chapter is rather like a play with three scenes. And we're going to divide up into those three scenes. The first scene is at Bethel. As Jeroboam stands by the altar to burn incense. And here we see in scene one that the Lord sends an immediate word of judgment. It is always reassuring to the people of God to know that God does not turn a blind eye to the sins of those who are opposed to him. He defends and asserts his name and his authority. And he sends an immediate word of judgment. Jeroboam and the entire congregation are gathered there on this day of worship. All is going very smoothly. Jeroboam is about to come to the great act of sacrifice when there is a sudden and a startling interruption. A man of God who turns out to be from Judah of all places. These are the ten tribes. Jeroboam has rebelled against Judah. That is not evident at first. But a man of God probably makes his way to the front and the proceedings grind to a halt as he suddenly shouts out, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Imagine someone coming into this service, and coming up here, pushing me to one side and saying something of that sort. That's the kind of thing that was going on. Here is a man of God with a word from the Lord against Jeroboam and against the false worship that he has established. Verse 1 tells us he has been sent by the Lord. It's a divine commandment. Verse 2 tells us the message is by the word of the Lord. Here is a man who effectively says to Jeroboam, Jeroboam, your altar will receive the only sacrifice in due course that is fit for it. The dead and rotten bones and bodies of the idolatrous priests you appointed to practice false religion will be burned on this altar. And it will be done by a man called Josiah. A king born to the house of David. That's again something that would cut against Jeroboam who had broken away from the house of David. You've rebelled against the house of David and it will be the house of David that will bring judgment upon you by the hand of the Lord. 
And you can read of the fulfilment of that in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. Fulfilled to the letter. But let's return. Jeroboam, before he has time to respond to this cry against the altar, the man of God gives not only a word of judgment, but a sign of judgment. Again, we we read, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Verse 3. And what is that sign? The altar surely shall split apart, be torn apart. The same word that was used of the cloak that Ahijah tore into ten pieces and two pieces and gave the ten to Jeroboam. And the ashes, he said, will be poured out. This is dramatic. A dramatic word and a dramatic sign. The message is clear. God is not going to accept you or your worship or your sacrifice, Jeroboam. It is rejected outright. God has spoken his word. God has sent his servant. Here is his immediate reaction. Here is his immediate response. God is against you, man. That is what he is saying. God is against your worship. And he one day will obliterate it and destroy it completely. There is no mistaking what God thinks of Jeroboam and his worship. But Jeroboam is not impressed. He stretches out his hand and shouts out to the guards, Arrest him! And there he is. And his arm is paralysed. That is a better translation than withered. It is paralysed. He can't move it. It's stuck there. There he is. No doubt quivering. But his hand unable to move it. And then what happens? The altar is shattered. And the ashes are scattered. There are hot coals all over the place. That would have been a frightening event. And here is a helpless king standing here with his hand stretched out and unable to do anything against God and against the man of God. How more pointed could God's judgment be? Jeroboam, your dream altar and worship here in Bethel is ruined. The altar torn, it's gone up in smoke. But Jeroboam is now in panic mode. There are no further calls upon the guards to arrest this man. Now he's only concerned with his hands stuck there, unable to do anything. Do something for my arm, treat God, he says. Call on him to restore my arm. And the man of God does so. And God in his mercy in the midst of all those warnings restores power to this man's arm. That was mercy. Perhaps you could say that the whole event is judgment mixed with mercy. For it is a warning. He does not destroy utterly and completely Jeroboam. He does not come and bring death upon him at this point. He is warning him. He is giving him further opportunity to repent of his sin and of his idolatry. 
but there is no repentance. So Jeroboam now changes his tack, realizing he cannot arrest this man of God, realizing the fiasco, he says, will abandon worship, come to my house and I'll give you a reward. It's quite clear what he's trying to do now is to buy him, to buy him off. Trying to buy the loyalty of the prophet and reverse perhaps the curse that has been pronounced effectively upon the altar and this worship. Again, the answer is plain from the man of God in verse 9. It was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. He said, You will give me up to half your house. I'm not interested. I have a commandment from God, and I will not disobey that word. I will not accept your invitation. Goodbye, Jeroboam. I am going. I will have nothing more. I'm not trucking with you in any way, shape or form. He well aware, he is well aware that to eat with Jeroboam would undo all that he had done. And therefore he turns his back upon him and leaves. The narrative leaves Jeroboam for a while reflect upon the significance of what had happened but rather than repent as we will see he must have nursed his wounded pride the scene too follows not Jeroboam but the man of God and now secondly we see that the Lord sends judgment on the man of God we've seen the immediate word of judgment upon Jeroboam but now we see the Lord sends judgment on the man of God and there are lots of questions we have here but I say they must remain unanswered this seems to be a bizarre twist in the story up to this point the man of God has obeyed the word of the Lord And he seems determined to continue to obey the word of the Lord. For when the sons of this old prophet in Bethel come to him and report what happened on that day in Bethel as Jeroboam was about to burn incense on the altar, his father says, well, which way did he go? And it so happened they saw the different way that he went from Bethel. And the father says to them, the old prophet says, saddle my donkey, I'm going after him. And when he comes to him and invites him back, the man of God says, no way, no way am I coming back. I have received a command from the Lord. I have been told by the Lord. You shall not eat bread nor drink water there, verse 17, nor return by going the way you came. He reiterates that. And yet this man, this man of God, who was as bold as a lion before Jeroboam, this man risked his life. He showed great boldness and courage. It was no small thing to go and stand as a lone voice and to bear testimony against this false worship and against this king. 
But this same man who had been as bold as a lion before this wicked king now listens to the lies of an old man who claims to be a prophet and ends up being killed by a lion himself. And we say, why on earth did the man of God listen to the old man's lies? He made his claims. Verse 18, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. And it adds in brackets, he was lying to him. Why did the, why did the man of God go back? Here was a man who claimed that he had received a revelation that was the direct opposite of the word that the man of God had received and had already obeyed and had already said to him he was going to continue to obey. Suddenly this man is seduced by this lying prophet and the passage is shouting out to us, test the spirits man of God. See whether this man is really a true prophet. But he doesn't do it. Nothing of the kind. The man swallows the lie. The man of God falls for these lies. Hook, line and sinker. And we read then that the Lord sends judgment on the man of God for his disobedience. And here is another twist. This old prophet has spoken lies. But now the word of God really comes to him. And that word of God is recorded there in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. The Lord can take a lying old prophet and still speak the truth through him. He did it with Balaam, who was a far more wicked man. God can speak the truth even using lying prophets. And what God spoke through that old lying prophet was fulfilled. You will die before you get back home. And on his way home he had not gone very far before he is confronted with a lion and the lion kills him. And it's a remarkable miracle seen by many. Verse 25, And then men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, the lion standing by the corpse. And when the old prophet finally comes having saddled his donkey again and come and found it. We read in verse 28, he went and found the corpse thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. Now that's exceptional. That's miraculous. Why did the lion lose his appetite? Well, what happened subsequently would not have happened had his body been mauled and destroyed and eaten by the lion. Because the old prophet gives this man a decent burial. He's not left to be cursed and fed to the birds of prey and the beasts of prey. And he then asks that when he dies, his ashes be buried in the man of God's tomb. 
in order that he not be destroyed among the false priests. This man, it suggests now, having heard the word that the man of God spoke against the altar, spoke against Jeroboam, spoke against the false priests, he does not want to be found among them. And that again is fulfilled. You will see it in 2 Kings 23 and verse 18. So this is not the end of the chapter. There are three verses that remain, verses 32 to the end. And they are very important verses. In verse 32, the old prophet, liar though he has been to the man of God, having spoken the truth as the word of the Lord came to him, now reiterates, now underlines the prophecy which the man of God had originally given. For the saying, he says, which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. And then we read in verse 33, after this event, suggesting that not only the man, the old man, the prophet, and his sons knew about all of this, but it suggests that Jeroboam knew it. He now has two confirmations. Jeroboam has two confirmations that that prophetic word of judgment will come to pass. And that brings us then to scene three, back with Jeroboam in verses 33 and 34. But this time, at a distance. We're not taken, as it were, into his court. We are simply told what he did. And we see now, thirdly, that the Lord's word stands despite the willful intransigence of Jeroboam. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. The word of judgment, the sign of judgment, his paralyzed arm that had been healed because of the mercy of God, the judgment on the man of God for his own disobedience. He did not turn from his evil way. His heart was like flint. He cast God behind his back. He was pig-headed. He was stubborn. Stubborn as a mule. Obdurate. Intransigent. His heart was set hard in the way of sin and evil. And we read in verse 34, this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. In Proverbs 3 and verse 33 we read the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the home of the just. Here is the curse of God and chapter 14 records for us the execution of that curse. Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. There was no 
not even an ounce had seen any indication of repentance. You may remember later on when Elijah condemned Ahab for his killing of Naboth and warned him of impending judgment and said he would make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. At least he humbled himself. And God showed some mercy to Ahab. But there was not an ounce of humbling. Not an ounce of repentance in this man. He is set in his ways. Indeed he goes further into sin. He proliferates false worship. According to verse 33. Again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. If you wanted to be a priest, you could be a priest. It didn't matter to Jeroboam. The more the merrier. The better it would be in order to serve this false worship. And we look at that. And we consider these scenes that come before the eyes of Jeroboam. And do we not say, how hard is the human heart? How blind can a man really be? How stubborn, how far can he dig his heels in and cast the word of God behind his back? But it was those very same sins that caused Christ to weep over Jerusalem. It was their hardness of heart. Jeroboam, like Jerusalem in the days of Christ, Jeroboam knew the things that made for his peace. He knew the law of Moses. He knew the promises that God had given to him that he would establish his kingdom had he obeyed the Lord. God had promised to do so, but he refused. And now that peace was hidden from him and his house was left to him desolate. It would be very easy for us to point the finger of accusation at Jeroboam and condemn him utterly and completely. Rather we ought like Christ to groan and to sorrow over this man's sin and recognise that if you and I were left to ourselves and were left to our own sins and our own blindness it might manifest itself in a different way but our hearts have the same capability to be as hard and stubborn as intransigent as Jeroboam though we do not read in this particular chapter that Jeroboam had been given up by God to his sin that seems to be the implication. And we ask ourselves, what if God had given me up to my sins? What if God had given me up to my uncleanness, to my lusts, to my evil desires? What if God had given me up to my disobedience and my idolatry and my covetousness? What if God had given me up to what Paul calls that futility of mind, that darkened understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, the blindness of hearts, 
past feeling, a sensitivity, a conscience that has been deadened to any sensitivity to sin. What if God had abandoned us to that state and to that condition? Jeroboam seems like that. He seems to be totally insensitive, totally now unaware, even though he's heard the word, he's seen the signs, he's been healed when his hand was paralyzed. He's seen what God did to the man of God for his disobedience. Jeroboam, haven't you thought about your disobedience? See what happened to the man of God. Your disobedience is far greater and here is God. He's not destroyed you yet. Jeroboam, it all washes over him. I'm suggesting then that if left to ourselves, the outcome will be very, not very different from what happened to Jeroboam. Therefore, if that is the case, let us magnify the grace and the power of God. The God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, out of the darkness, shone into our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is that something you can do in and of yourselves? No. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 makes it quite clear. It is God who shone the light into your hearts. You would have remained in darkness. I would have remained in the dark. But for the grace of God that shone forth. There in Jesus Christ. There the eternal love of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. There as he takes our nature in the incarnation. There as he dies on that cross of Calvary. There as he rises again from the dead and then ascends into heaven. There he intercedes for us in heaven. And one day will return again in glory to bring us with himself Brothers, sisters, where did such understanding come from? It was light that shone into your hearts. Otherwise you'd be in the same position as Jeroboam. And don't imagine that there was something in you. There is that pride that creeps in and seeks to undermine the grace of God that thinks, oh well, maybe I wasn't as bad as that person. Maybe I wasn't as lost or perhaps not as guilty. Maybe there was something in me. There is nothing in you to commend you to God. There is no righteousness in you. No righteousness in me. Nothing that would earn the favour and the kindness of God. It is sheer mercy. Sheer grace. From beginning to end. Let me drive it home a step further. For here is a man, Jeroboam, who is going to die in his sins. And the Bible says that idolaters like Jeroboam will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not just idolaters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, also fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers. And we could add to that list those who are unthankful and never give a thought about God, those who are just plain unbelieving, who will not hear and receive the testimony that God has concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul can say, 
to those Corinthians and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. He magnifies that same grace. You see, you were without hope. There was no way you could have saved yourself. There was no way anyone else could ever have saved you. It was God. The sheer grace and sheer mercy. Is God showing mercy to you this evening? Is there someone here this evening to whom God is speaking, warning you of the judgment that is to come if you do not repent of your sin and believe the testimony that we read in 1 John, the witness that God bears to his Son, Jesus Christ. He who has the Son has life. But if we reject that testimony, Rejecting the word of God and saying in effect that God is a liar. If we go on in that sin, God will bring down his judgment upon us for sure. God may put some roadblocks in your path. You may not like the preacher. The preacher who exposes sin, who pricks your conscience, gets under your skin. So be it. That doesn't particularly concern me. What concerns me is that you hear the word of life. You hear the word of grace. What concerns me is what you do with Christ and whether you believe upon Christ or not. What you see in this chapter and what you see in the subsequent chapter 14 is that judgment is inevitable for those who continue to defy the word of God. Those who defy God's gospel, defy God's son, who persist in doing evil, who persist in their sin, if you remain unrepentant, then there is only the fearful judgment of God awaiting you. There are two further things I want to say in the light of this chapter. The light of the three scenes that we've unfolded. First of all, I want to say things to the entire church in order to instruct us, in order to encourage us we are often informed in this day and age we are too dogmatic, we are too narrow, we are bigoted. We must embrace all other beliefs as legitimate expressions of worship. We must embrace other beliefs and their ways of salvation. We mustn't be narrow and exclusive. Now we are not told why the old prophet in Bethel didn't oppose Jeroboam. That's one of the unanswered questions. Had he compromised? Was he tolerant? We don't know. But by God's grace, brethren, 
we will never knowingly compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would urge upon you every man, woman who is a member of this church, every man or woman who names the name of Jesus Christ, never renounce, never go back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, outside of Jesus Christ, outside of God's eternal Son, our Saviour, there is no salvation. There never will be salvation. There never can be salvation. There never was salvation. There never will be salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone. Outside of Christ there is only judgment. And on what basis do I say that? God has spoken in his word. The only way to God, the only way to worship, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. I say that to instruct you, I say that to encourage you, and to exhort you to stand firm and not be removed from that gospel all the days of your life. And if a man stands up here, and if it be me, or if it be Pastor Jeremy, or some other man who tells you something different, you better be the first on your feet to oppose that man. Yes, you better be first on your feet to oppose that man, and to show him from the Scriptures that he's leading the Church of Christ astray, and have nothing more to do with him in the pulpit if he continues in that vein. And then, there is something else to say. Again, to the entire church, but also in particular to those who at this moment do and may in the future proclaim the word of God. There is a word here of warning and instruction. God requires ongoing obedience to his word and to his revealed will. The man of God, obedient and bold as he had been, failed to discern falsehood in this old prophet who came and spoke lies. And the man of God perished because of his disobedience. There was a dead body outside of Bethel to prove it. There was a tomb where his body was laid in Bethel. He should never have listened to those lying words. He contradicted the words that he had received from the living God. If you preach the word of God, if you stand and minister the word of God in any way, shape or form, then the truth of God must grip you and control you and transform you so that you will not depart from the way of truth and as God's grace in great quantity is needed and required if that such a man is to stand and not disobey the word of God. And I would urge upon the church, it is your duty to pray for God's servants. They are the most vulnerable men in this world. They are the targets of Satan. If they are to remain faithful, if they are to remain obedient, they are to remain not compromising, then they 
will do so on the back of your prayers. They need your prayers. And to the church, I would also say this. Those who proclaim the word of God are subject to the word of God. And even when God's servants fail, even when a preacher may fall because of disobedience, in no way does it diminish the truth of God's word. In no way does it diminish the truth of the gospel. It brings shame. It brings dishonour to Christ. But it does not alter the gospel. It does not alter God's truth. The truth depends upon the God who has given us the truth, not on the man who declares it. And the sad effect is that there are those who have fallen. There are those who have brought great shame. There are those who have greatly disappointed us. For all our confidence is not in man. Our confidence is in God. Whatever Jeroboam does, whatever disobedience this man of God actually carried out following his great bold act, it does not alter in any way the truth The word of the Lord stands. His kingdom remains. The man of God dies. He is killed by a lion. The word of God stands forever. There is our fundamental confidence. And we will not be moved away from that. May God give us grace to hold fast to God to his word, to his truth, to his commandments, to his promises. And so we remain faithful to him. Amen. We thank you, our God, in the midst of wickedness and evil and disobedience and idolatry. Your word stands fast. The gospel of Jesus Christ is set forth in all its unchanging glory and beauty and power and wisdom. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that has enabled us to believe upon Christ and to receive the gift of eternal life. And Lord, having bought the truth, may we never sell it. Give us grace, O God, to hold fast unto Christ and to the exclusiveness of the way of salvation, and the way in which you are to be worshipped, in accordance with your word. Keep our hearts and our minds, we pray. Give us strength, give us obedience, and give us continued grace to persevere in the way of truth and godliness. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.